five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Sly Stone, everybody is a star. Sorry for the uh, delay here. For some reason, the, uh, the website wasn't wasn't working. wasn't uh, wasn't loading. But uh, here we are, and thanks for being back. Uh, we are back on the grounds of Synanon. We will return to Synanon and wrap up the story, if one could wrap it up in the amount of time that we have. It's very Difficult because the Synanon story, the further you get into it, the more complex it gets. And and I'm not talking about strange uh, connections with like alphabet groups or, or things like that. Although, and I've been spending some time digging around and trying to find if there is a CIA connection to Senanon, and I don't believe there is, at least not overtly and barely covertly. The one thing that I that I was able to connect with Senanon is the style of therapy, which is known as confrontational therapy or attack therapy, comes out of a uh, a type of brainwashing that was developed in North Korea. I don't know how Chuck Dieterich uh, figured that out. I don't know where he got that from. I don't know if somebody else brought that to the table for sending on. But that's, that's kind of the weird wrinkle, right? They're using something that's based on a technique that was used on captured soldiers in North Korea. So that part, I still haven't been able to untangle. And it's there because it's the same technique. I mean, I'm going to talk about how that technique is being used today as we speak. Um, but other than that, it, it feels to me like Synanon is in an odd way fairly organic in that it sprouts up out of the psyche of this guy, Chuck Dieterich. And the more you get into Synanon, the, the more complex it gets. Because I was on the internet last night, and there are a lot of Pinterest pages of images of Synanon and people who live there. It's amazing how many people especially young people. So these were people during the seventies who were probably about my age and maybe a little bit younger 
like, like uh, 15, 16. So that would have been like late seventies. And they would have been about 15 years old, 16 years old. Uh, some, some of whom are even younger, uh, five, six, seven, they have very young kids living at the community, not this place behind me. They had a whole separate facility for children. And he got pretty radical. Dieterich got pretty radical with children and separating them out away from their, their parents. Um, so there are a lot of these Pinterest pages that have images of Synanon and they're put together by people that used to live there. So you, you look at the pages and it's, it's really Synanon is this great paradox in that it turns into this kind of very strange mutation of what it started out to be. And it becomes this very paranoid, I wouldn't say they were a, a doomsday group, but I don't, I don't know, I don't know where Dieterich was headed. It was, like, I mean, when, when you you see this with a lot of groups, you see paranoia set in with cults. That's the one thing that they seem to be infected by is paranoia, is that the outside world views what they're doing with a great deal of suspicion, and. That's, that's a really interesting factor in and of itself because the outside world does view it with suspicion, sometimes rightfully so, and sometimes because the outside world is kind of geared to be that way. It's, it's, it, I, I think it's very hard to set up, not to say that we can't attempt it, but I think it's very hard to set up an alternative a community where you're you're basically living as much outside of the the system, but at the same time having some things that connect you. This I think it's very hard, and it, it gets especially harder when there's this paranoia that begin begins to run rampant through these groups, and you can see it. Paranoia plays a huge role in Scientology. Huge, like Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard ordered people to join Synanon. Not sorry, I'm not Synanon. Um, Est. L. Ron Hubbard sent people to Est so that they could spy on Est and Werner Erhard. Scientology had a whole like five-story cap, you know, five-file cabinet on Est and all the um, intel that they acquired on Est. He he didn't like Werner Erhard, and astrologically, they're opposites. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard is a Pisces, Werner Erhard is a Virgo. That's kind of interesting. They've got this, this uh, rivalry thing going on. And Werner Erhard did belong to Scientology for a while. Werner Erhard was in a number of these uh, different groups. The group that he comes out of is this group called Mind Dynamics. Werner Erhard is another one of these really interesting characters that pops up during the 70s. Just like, it, it's, it's it, California is really weird. I mean, it, it's sort of like it, the, the Pacific Ocean just sucks these people from middle America ultimately to wind up in California, whether it's Northern California, uh, as in the case of Werner Erhard, or Southern California, as in the case of Chuck Dieterich. 
Charlie Manson is not from California. He winds up showing up there. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard is, if I'm not mistaken, not from California. He winds up going to, all these people wind up getting sucked into the vortex of California. Jim Jones is not from California. He's from, uh, I believe, Toledo, Ohio. So it has this power to, to, to bring these people in and they wind up uh, becoming these pivotal characters in the story of California, and some of which are connected to things like uh, the CIA and covert operations, MKUltra. Clearly, that's the case with Jonestown. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard comes out of naval intelligence. So there's fingerprints all over the stuff. Werner Erhard is... Uh, he's a Werner Erhard is a trip. His name is Jack Rosenberg, and he uh, he was he's got a Jewish name, but he was he was raised as a I think a Protestant. I'm pretty sure of that, and he gets married, and he has I think three kids. This is all. Back east, I think it's. I think he's from, if I'm not mistaken, Pennsylvania. And then he just leaves his wife and kids, like they don't know where he is, and he changes his name to Werner Erhard because Werner stands for Werner Heisenberg, and Erhard is this other. I think his name was what Ludwig Erhard. I think he was some kind of philosopher or something. So he changes his name to Werner Erhard. He meets this woman and they go and they live in St. Louis. And his wife doesn't hear from him for a very long time. It's a very odd story. And he winds up uh, recreating himself. He goes through the Dale Carn. He's a car salesman. That's what Werner Erhard is. He's a car salesman. And car salesman, by the way, they get serious training. I used to know this woman and her brother, was a car salesman and he was a, a very successful uh, car salesman. He was so, hey, come on up here, you ready? He was so successful that he uh, wanted to becoming a trainer for other car salesmen in terms of sales techniques and closes. And so they go through a lot of training and Werner Erhard was actually trained by Lee Iacocca, which is kind of interesting. Like he was literally trained by Lee Iacocca hands-on so he got a lot of sales training and he was very good at it. He worked for Encyclopedia Britannica, became one of their uh, big salespeople. He did Dale Carnegie. So Werner Erhard was in this uh, big uh, self-improvement mode. And he also really got into uh, Zen philosophy and Alan Watts becomes one of his teachers. We could do a whole other episode of on Werner Erhard. He's a very interesting character. And Est is another one of these fairly confrontational models. But they all have this kind of confrontational piece around self-disclosure, which one could make a case that it, it's kind of essential if you want people to break through their conditioning. Even if you're you know, with a really good psychotherapist, I mean, somebody who's really, really good, they will strip you down and then 
they'll do it in a way that's loving, of course, but they make you become aware of your own um, tapes and habituation and uh, idiosyncrasies that you justify. And then once you become aware of those things, the idea is to free yourself from the habituation. And that's really what kind of Est was about. It was all about accountability. You, you know, Werner Erhard believed that one of the things that really fouls up our society, and I'd agree with him, is um, lack of accountability and agreements that break down between people. And I think there's a lot of truth there. And Werner Erhard was one of the only people that I know of that at that level that sued the IRS and won. They, they accused him of owing all these back taxes. And they put a lien on his, his property. And Erhard, Werner Erhard, like, he sued them and won. And they want to pay him $200,000. He, so he's he's a super he's still around by the way um but again est is a two-week period it's kind of a um it's not a microwave version of synonym with the confrontational therapy or the attack but it's kind of there right it's the whole model for S is you had two weekends and they were part of a, a two-week experience so um was it two weekends it was two weeks so you had three weekends you had three weekends. So you had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then you would be at the at EST or the seminar essentially from Saturday through Sunday night and very stringent. You couldn't, uh, there were only allotted breaks to go to the bathroom. Um, you couldn't speak unless you were spoken to. So you couldn't raise a question. But then there was also a modified version of the game, which is this process where you essentially get deconstructed. It's not as crazy and wild and confrontational as the game. I'm still looking for some game video footage, by the way. And, uh, and then you would have a night version of Est. So you would show up after work. So it was very, very intensive. In a lot of ways, it's a lot like outpatient treatment therapy. If you know anybody that's been through outpatient treatment therapy, it's very similar. It's minimum 21 days. Um, you're there on the weekends and you're there as soon as you leave work and you get there at a lot of time, like 6.30 or something like that. So it's very similar in a lot of ways. Anyway, we're talking about uh, Synanon and we're talking about Chuck Dieterich. And the thing that strikes me about Synanon in a positive sense is how many lives were actually saved by Synanon. And one of the, uh, one of the characters that comes through Synanon is this guy named Matthew Beard. And Matthew Beard played Stymie on uh, The Little Rascals. Remember, remember him? So he was a heroin addict and he went through Senanon and apparently Senanon saved his life. And I think that there are stories, there are people who will talk about how uh, Senanon at a certain period of time, Senanon didn't save everybody. Like they, it didn't save everyone. That's pretty obvious. 
and I don't know what the success rate was and maybe somewhere in the 60 to 70% range, but even if it's 60% and they're getting 60% of these people who are hooked on junk off of junk, nobody had ever done that before. So Dietrich, um, by the way, you're listening to the uh, 22222 version of 15 Minutes of Flame. Chatlandia, I'm going to come in and check with you in a little bit. So if you're listening to the podcast, um, we stream over here live at 15minutesofflame.com every day. And you get to actually see the show. Listening to it is fine as well if you want to. Uh, and we also have a chat function and a lot of uh, very cool hip people hanging out in the chat. By the way, that version of Everybody is a Star by Sly Stone is kind of sad, actually. It was it was like the ending of the song just kind of goes, right? It's sort of like that's, I think that's where they are. That's where Sly and the Family Stone are at that point in their career. They're just going, uh. I think that was from 1974. Uh, the, tre- the tread is getting real thin on those tires. And Larry Graham isn't even in the band because he's supposed to, he's supposed to come in. Like the, the cool thing about that song is that you have all these different voices in the group that are taking part in singing. And so it's a very group effort and it brings out their star qualities. Everybody gets to shine a little bit. That was kind of the, that, that was, that was the, that was the, the philosophy of, of Sly and the Family Stone. Everybody got to shine a little bit. He was, really, he was really good at that until he wasn't. And Sly's demise takes place when he moves to L.A. <laughs> so when he moves to L.A., he just falls into a really weird crowd and a dark crowd and a very druggy crowd. And he becomes more interested in drugs and the music. It's music. It's the music business story. Uh, in a nutshell. Okay, so we're going to come back. I'm going to come back. I'm going to talk about uh, Chuck Dieterich a little bit more and Synanon a little bit more. And I'm going to tell you why I think Synanon is is ultimately interesting and Chuck Dieterich is interesting and why Synanon ultimately becomes very important, even though at the time, uh, especially with Paul Morantz. By the way, I went to Paul Morantz's website. Paul Morantz has some pretty extreme views. I have to say, I sent him an email to see if he'd come on the show. I haven't gotten a reply back yet, but if he if he wants to come on the show, we'd have a lot to talk about. Because uh, he identified uh, Trump as, as Damien in the Omen 5. So Paul Morantz, the cult hunter, uh, definitely targeted Trump and the MAGA group as a cult. And in a lot of ways, it kind of is. But there was also a cult of Obama. It's either, you know, was it as vocal? Uh, probably not. Probably not. But it was still pretty, it was still pretty culty. Let's put it that way. He's also a big climate change guy. So if he comes on the show, we'll have something to talk about. No doubt. All right. Let me check in with you. It looks like uh, chat is a fully functioning entity today, which is good. 
All right. Who do we have here? Yeah, for a while today, I couldn't get this. I couldn't, the site wasn't responding. So I'm glad everything is working out here. We got Lisa Koloshinsky saying hello from Snowmageddon. Must be cold up there. Miss Nikia's in the house. Oh, they went from Key West to Snowmageddon. Wow. Uh, there's, there's Fran, CC Jones. What's going on, Fran? Who else do we have? Kabuki Theater, lots of twos today. Absolutely. Catherine Kramer. Hi, Catherine. Finally made it to chat. Welcome. Good to see you. April's here. Sony. See, this is one of the good things about this chat. There is my man, Ryan. What's going on, Ryan? IWW. Man, Lisa, Lisa living the life, going fishing and going on boats, boat, boat ride with Captain George. Whoever Captain George is, that's cool. Uh, who else do we have here? Bad Mother Trucker. I love it. Freedom. 9-11 a.m. Bad Mother Trucker chiming in. Also, C.C. Jones, Catherine Kramer chiming in at 9-11. Morning to all. The good news is that you are still breathing that vitality. Absolutely. Beth Berry, Double B in the house. Renee, Triple Three, right behind her. Kelly B. Morning all. The site was unavailable, but the, yes, me too. Empath, good to see you. What's happening? Who else do we have here? Rue, Rue 9. What's going on, brother? Uh, who else do we have? Anybody else? Do, 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 do. I get, do some people go over to, um, I guess some people go over to BoxCast. Frank Bry, chiming in from super cold North Idaho. Gucci to goats. Good morning. We'll be uh, hanging out a little bit later. Uh, Rocky, cold here too in Montana. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get some of that cold snap down here in Texas. Hucklebuck four eleven checking. There is my man Thomas Jordan. Good to see you, Tom. Mm, who else do we have? Are we present in counter for? Did I miss anybody? TJ checking in at 9.22. You guys are right on time in terms of your uh, numerology, symbolic numerology. I did, uh, yes, they let you go to the bathroom, but you have, you have appointed times. It's not like you have to, you have, you have appointed times that you go. I do, Silva, Silva, yes. The Silva mind control system. Yeah, all these things were very interesting. It was all part of the, the human potential. Cybernetics was a book that uh, changed Werner Erhard's life. Uh, Tamara, what's going on? Another great northerner. Yeah, Jasper checked in and checked out, and he's like, okay, I punched the clock. A family member went through us, had a nervous breakdown. There was somebody that died. Uh, during one of the S sessions and the family sued and they didn't, they didn't win. Nash Bridges, bad man, I think ended with Don Draper at Esalon. That's a great point. That's so, so I was a huge madman freak. I saw it all in, uh, I, I binge watched madman. I couldn't, I did a lot of blog posts on madman too. That was a big source of content for me for a while. Uh, let's see. Anybody else? Uh, Debisu in the house. Also dealing with some tinnitus. Okay, good. 
You guys are here. I'm here. We're all here. We are all together. So let's go back to let's go back to let's go back to Synanon. And one of the things that I think is fascinating about Chuck Dieterich or Dieterich is that he has this idea that he's going to be this great man. He sees himself in the role of social reformer. By the way, Don Draper would be a candidate for somebody who would leave the advertising business, understand all the things he learned from advertising, and start his own human potential system and group. Doesn't he seem like like his character, especially at Esalon? If you haven't seen The End of Madman, he comes up with this idea, which becomes the the Coca-Cola commercial. We'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, which is very Aquarian. You have all these people, all these different ethnicities, and it's it's a, uh, it's a small world after all in about 60 seconds, but with Coca-Cola. But Don Draper seems like the kind of guy that could start his own version of Est or whatever, doesn't he? Fascinating character, dual personality, a lot of Gemini stuff going on in Mad Men, obviously. So in terms of Chuck Dieterich, he believes himself to be this great man and this social reformer. He like he envisions himself as Martin Luther King, um, maybe Martin Luther. Who knows, right? But he's he sees himself in that light. And in a lot of ways, he is. But he's an Aquarius rising. He has Mars in Aquarius. And he is this revolutionary character. And he's, he's, in a lot of ways, like the John the Baptist of the recovery movement. And he sets up this template with Synanon with all of its flaws and imperfections because there's some heavy-duty control going on in Synanon. So it's this weird combination of people having their lives saved. But on the other hand, it's also this kind of dark psychological operation that's going on. And don't think that there aren't people, even if, even if Synanon was not being directly funded, because they weren't directly funded by some intelligence operation. It's not like Jim Jones coming back from Brazil with $10,000 in his pocket. I would not be surprised if they had people on the inside who were taking notes or or they would show up for a lot of the uh, synonym group activities. It was a very kind of fluid, open place. They'd have these open houses and the, the house jazz band would play. It was a, It was kind of a hip place to be. So I think it'd be very easy for the CIA to send somebody in there and go, hey, you know, go take some notes with Chuck Dieterich. See how he's doing. See what's going on here. Let's 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 have a file and maybe potentially insert somebody 
into the mix where they become, you know, maybe second or third in line. Again, I haven't, I haven't gone two or three levels deep in terms of the synonym hierarchy, but you know, these things, you know, do happen, you know, through inserting people in a group or an organization. So he creates this thing and it just spins out of control. It totally spins out of control because they start to make a lot of money. A bunch of money starts coming through Synodon and then he starts to have problems with the IRS. So they did what Scientology did, although with Scientology, the IRS had probably learned their lesson because for Scientology to become a church, they literally had to extort and uh, sue the shit out of everybody that was in the IRS. That's exactly what they did. David Miscavige, who's the head of Scientology, wanted to have Scientology become a church because of the tax stuff. And the IRS were just, they're pushing back because they saw what had happened with Synanon and some of these other groups. And they're like, no, 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 no. We, we want that money. That's a lot of fucking money. So what Miscavige did is he targeted like hundreds of employees at the IRS and started, they all started suing them personally. So the IRS was entangled in hundreds of lawsuits. Uh, Ms. Cavage, they would also do stuff like they would actually go into the IRS offices and steal material. That's how bold and brazen the Scientology people were. So they were trying to get everything they could over on the IRS. And eventually it worked. They eventually got their nonprofit status. So the same thing happens with Synanon, but there's no drama. They just apply, it happens. And that's when things I think get start to get weird because now Synanon is it's it was for profit, it made a lot of money. And at one point, Synanon was the largest landowner in Marin County, over over 3,000 acres in Marin County. That's a lot of land for Marin County, 3,000 acres. And then they became this huge landowner in Tulare County, which is in central California. And that's where they build their, um, they build their compound. And that's where, where Dieterich is raising all of his young skinheads. It's just, it, it so it takes this weird turn when it becomes a church. And when you have a church, you need a God. And Chuck Dieterich steps into that role of being, being God. And in, in an odd way, he's almost uh, a reincarnation of Yahweh. And I think this, this is the odd thing that happens with cult leaders or people that rise to a certain level. And this whole paranoia sets in. And this, this, uh, this jealousy, like y- Yahweh is a jealous God. Like he, 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 you know, he set no God above me or beside me. There's only me, just me. You know, for better or worse, whatever you think of this entity of Yahweh. I'm not a huge fan of the historical depiction of Yahweh. It seems 
like a cult leader. Um, but that's what happens. These, these, these cult leaders, I think, begin to embody the spirit of dark Yahweh. And this is what happens with Diedrich. And he becomes paranoia. And the survival of his group and his uh, mission becomes paramount. So by the time they set up the compound in Tulare County, they're not really into, they still have a lot of these other sitting on like satellites. They're still going on. In fact, they're branching out into places like Europe. So it's not like they weren't doing recovery programs. They were. And Sidonon actually continues to function in the aftermath of Chuck Dieterich's fall, which is when they placed the rattleless rattlesnake into the mailbox of Paul Morantz, who's the lawyer that's going after Sidonon, which is a whole bizarre story in and of itself. But once Dieterich moves out of the picture, and he has a, he's a, he has a pretty bad and he starts drinking again, which is pretty sad. He spent all that time, uh, you know, kicking booze and helping people get off of smack using very controversial methods. But he winds up becoming a drinker again. So essentially, Sinanon does what a lot of other groups do: they leave the country because things are getting too weird. So Dieterich takes a group of people to Germany and hangs out in Germany. And then he changes the rules of Sinanon and the rules of Sinanon now become, uh, you can drink again, or you can drink. Sinanon will allow you to drink just as long as you're not doing heroin. So that's where he really starts to fall apart. And he's always had poor health. He has this weird thing going on with his body he can't, he can barely see out of one eye. He can barely hear out of another eye. One eye looks, you know, he had, he had meningitis when he was, I think a teen. And he was one of the first groups of people that received penicillin as uh, an antibiotic in a way to deal with meningitis. So, but it, it, it damaged him neurologically. The pet, the, the meningitis damaged him neurologically. And that's, it's, it's odd because I had meningitis as a kid too. And there are two types of meningitis. The one that he has, which is less deadly, but it can fuck you up. And then there's another type, which is very deadly. But if you recover from it, your recovery is um, not as, as drastic. Like you don't, you, there, you, you don't suffer the same kind of neurological disorders that Chuck Dietrich had, even with the application of penicillin. And I got hit with massive doses of penicillin when I was 18 months. That's when I had uh, spinal meningitis. And I, I, I do believe the meningitis and the penicillin affected me. Uh, I was, as a kid, I was pretty clumsy. And I, and maybe it had something to do with motor skills, but I, as I got older, I got, I got better anyway. So he's this distorted character and 
his life becomes a, a, a tragedy, an absolute tragedy by the end. They won't even put him in jail at that point in time because they know that he's only got like 18 months left, you know, a very, very short period of time. And he, I think he dies fairly young. I think he dies around the age of 66 or something like that. But what happens with Synanon is that, again, the recovery model and the recovery uh, concept is born out of it. So in a weird way, he is a social reformer. He is a great man in his own weird way. And there are a lot of people inside of Synanon that loved him and then they would hate him and then they would love him and then they would hate him. And he, he's this very polarizing, but very interesting character in a lot of ways. I'm going to put his chart up here because I was going to go over it on Sunday night and I didn't get a chance to because I felt like Sunday night show was just really tight and compact and focused and I didn't want to diffuse it that much more. So you can see his chart here. He was born in Toledo, Ohio, uh, March 20. So he's from Toledo, Ohio. I, I, I still think, uh, Jim Jones. So he's got really powerful numbers. He's got, he's born on the 22nd. Now look at today's a 22 day. And he's born in 1913, which is the year the Federal Reserve is created. And that's a 22. So he's got these two very powerful 22 sequences in his chart. Like those are pretty heavy numbers in terms of numerology. And look, he's born at 4.20 a.m. That is a trip. 4.20 a.m. There is something a little fascistic about Chuck Dietrich. You can see here he's got Aquarius on the Ascendant. There's Mars. Pretty militant. You know, Mars on the Ascendant. And he's got Uranus in the 12th house. And when we think of the 12th house, we think of recovery. It's one of those places. When I talk about <clears throat> the 12th house in terms of astrology and uh, these uh, interpretations as it relates to the world, we have hospitals, we have sanitariums, we have brothels, we have prisons, we have recovery centers. You know, there's other versions, there's monasteries. Uh, I think, I actually think I, uh, movie theaters are also very 12th housey. Um, BDSM, sadomasochism, dungeons, I think all that stuff is 8th house. But we can see here that he has some very interesting planets. He's got Uranus in Aquarius in the 12th house. So he's going to have a radical approach when it comes to this whole idea of recovery. He's going to be Uranian. And he also has this very interesting Juno-Mars conjunction. Juno represents uh, the birth of something new. And he's bringing something new into the world, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Mars. And it's through the, the force of his will. By the way, in human design, I think he's a 4-6 projector. 
And what's odd about Dieterich is he has the, he has the same right angle cross as I do, which is the right angle of love. <laughs> so I've got something. So I've got this weird connection with Chuck Dieterich because he has meningitis. I have meningitis. Um, he's got the same right angle cross. I, I have, we're both projectors. It's, it's kind of interesting in an odd way. Anyway, but you can see where he has this very Aquarian influence on people around him. And you can see where Mars becomes manifest in this attack therapy. And this, the game that's very Mars, like very confrontation. He's going to learn through confrontation. He's also born, even though he's 26, 22nd of March, sometimes that can, depending on the year, it can be either, uh, Aries or or the end of uh, Pisces. Here he's born uh, at one Aries. His true node is at three Aries. And he has the moon in Libra, which ironically I do as well. And he has uh, a, he's born on a lunar conjunction. I'm sorry, a lunar eclipse. So he's he has a very interesting chart. He's got Mercury in Aries. He's a pioneer. Uh, and there, this is all kind of ingressing into his second house. He has Venus in Taurus. And again, with the square to Uranus, very disruptive, potentially very confrontational. He's got a weird relationship with his mother because his father dies young and he becomes sort of the, the father of the household when he's up until about the age of 12. And then the new guy moves in. He has Jupiter in Capricorn in the 11th house, which is the house of groups and organizations. So it's going to be expansive. And in Capricorn, what does he do? He turns Synanon into a corporation. That's the first thing he does. He doesn't go nonprofit. He just turns it right into a corporation. And you can see where he makes a lot of money from it. He's got Venus and Taurus in the second house. That's land, land ownership. He's a huge landowner. This or Synodon, the church, becomes a huge owner of land in California. So really, again, very fascinating chart. Uh, he's got a Pluto-Mars trine, which is an interesting trine because to me that is indicative of regeneration. When we think of Pluto, we think of regeneration. So he has this very regenerative power in a lot of ways and to regenerate people's lives, but it's not an easy trip, not with Mars in Aquarius on the ascendant. And he has a Mars Saturn square, which is very anti-establishment in a lot of ways. And so he's an interesting character, a very interesting chart. You can, you can see some of the elements of Synanon as uh, Synanon is assembled through his chart. And ultimately he succumbs to this um, kind of militant Aries energy in his chart. And what were there like 80? I think Paul Moran said there were like at least 87 known acts of violence that Synanon had perpetrated. Like it got, it got really out of control. There was this rancher near Badger and there were kids who were trying to escape the, um, the compound and he would 
allow them to stay there and uh, kind of, you know, feed them and try to get them out of Synanon. And they found out that he was doing this. And they and Chuck Dieter sent over his jackboot thugs and essentially almost beat him to death with the a the 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 butt of a rifle um while they had their it was it was he was in a car and they smashed in his window uh with the car his wife i think his wife and kids were in the car and they held them like it got really really dark and really ugly very dark and ugly and something happens with Dieterich. I, it might have been maybe a, 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 it could have been that Saturn transit. Uh, let's see, Saturn was in Pisces at uh, 1965, 66, 67, I think Saturn moves into Aries. And maybe that's the transit that starts to flip Dieterich as it conjuncts the sun and makes him uh, more aggressive. And instead of being somebody who is this lightning rod, because that's really what Aries can be sometimes. Aries can be a real lightning rod, right? It's just this pure expression of will. So when Saturn comes in, it, it basically resets um, the tone and expression. And I guess I'd have to do some transits on this to find out where he turns, but he definitely does turn. And his controversial methods become a controversial uh, community and one that becomes actually pretty scary. So without, you know, going down too many more rabbit holes with sending on, I think we're going to, you know, draw that to a close because I do want to talk a little bit about a few other California related things. Um, and I may get into Michael Aquino and, uh, and the church of Satan looking at San Francisco, because there is this San Francisco connection with Synanon and it's through Delancey street and it's through uh, John Marr who'd been through Synanon. So there's these, these degrees of separation. And of course, Synanon makes its presence very known in the Bay area through um, its presence in Marin County. So we may return to San Francisco and just try to round this whole thing up. I mean, we could spend forever with California in these, these groups and these cults and the infiltration of a lot of intelligence and COINTELPRO, whether it's through the FBI, uh, infiltrating the Black Panthers, to Project Phoenix, who has links to the Symbionese Liberation Army, Donald DeFries and Sin Q and Patty Hearst. It's just an absolute crazy time. Like California becomes this uh, cyclotron of, in a lot of ways, the world that we're living in now. And I grew up in that era. I grew up with 
the Zodiac Killer. Like I, I was a latchkey kid and I'm like, you know, the Zodiac Killer is loose and you're a latchkey kid coming from school. And it's like, man, the Zodiac Killer, you know, you have to kind of like pay attention. So I grew up in that, I grew up in that world. I grew up with watching the local newscast talk about Angela Davis and the Black Panthers and shootouts at, at uh, courthouses at crazy fucking time. Um, I do want to round this off with Synanon to bring it into the present because this will get us into the 222-22 conversation. I was on with um, uh, Noreen Helphand last night, um, Wild at Heart, and I think that show will be loaded up onto YouTube by tomorrow, and I'll post that over on Twitter. And it was a good show because we talked a lot about the Pluto return of the United States. And I, and I brought up this idea that relates to Chuck Dieterich and his, uh, his evolution and then deconstruction through Synanon. And it relates to this idea of Aquarius. I mean, you saw his ascendant, you saw Mars in Aquarius. And one of the things that we can learn about Aquarius is that things don't always turn out the way that we think they're going to turn out with Aquarius. So Chuck Dieterich is this example of he's going to be a great man. He's going to be the social reformer. And in an odd way, he is. But he's remembered for being a paranoid pariah who oversaw a, uh, a mind control cult versus somebody who gives birth to the recovery movement in the United States and in the world. Like this whole idea of recovery doesn't happen without Chuck Dietrich. But there's no statue of Chuck Dietrich in Santa Monica. And that's Aquarius. So he does become this guy, but he does it in a roundabout way. He creates the model or the, the, the bones of the model. And then other people come in, they clean it up, they streamline it, they commodify it and create the recovery concept, concept of recovery that is prevalent. How well it's doing at this point, I don't know. Because I think the issues around recovery are, they're, they're more social than they are personal. I mean, there's always a social aspect. If you go back and you look at who was getting hooked on smack during the time that Chuck Dietrich was starting Synanon, those a lot of those people have personal demons. That they were that their demons arose from their family situation, or maybe perhaps uh, they came through the Korea, Korean War and they killed a bunch of people and had no way of processing that information. Dealing with very creative types like jazz musicians who um, would do heroin for any number of reasons to be creative. It's very Piscean or to be trapped by their publishers and record company people, which I think is also an insidious tool of control. But there, by and large, there weren't, it wasn't like social factors were driving Addiction, those were personal issues. Those were personal demons. Now we have a um, 
broad spectrum of trauma that drives people to addiction. So you do have the personal trauma, the personal story, but you also have what's going on socially. And during the time where Senate on, which is around 1958, begins to put its shovel in the ground, a person could get a job and have roughly a living wage, and it didn't have to be a great job. Back in those days, they still delivered milk. And you could be a milkman, and you could own a house. You could be a bus driver and own a house. I mean, you could... these jobs that were service oriented or manufacturing related, you know, you, you could have a life by having a job. That's not, that's hardly on the table now. And we have all these other social factors that are in play. So, so addiction and the idea of addiction isn't just what you experienced when you were young and you're, father left your mother or you saw them, you know, hitting each other or or maybe you were abused in the process. You know, I'm not saying that those things don't count. They don't matter. Of course they do. But now there's a whole other panoply of things that feed into drug addiction and it's the social condition and it's very complex. So we can't talk about addiction in the same way anymore. We have to address it from a social level. So what's interesting about this whole thing with Diedrich is that when I was on uh, Noreen's show last night, I realized that they have taken this model of attack therapy and they've made it public. Like it has become a collective exercise. So when we see this breakdown in in the schism between the right and the left, black and white, straight and gay, all these uh, fractalized components of our culture, what, what, what's going on? There's this attack therapy. Like we are in a totally immersive version of the game. And all you have to do is go online or um, you know, watch mainstream media and you'll see it. You'll see it in action. You have okay, so I'm gonna bring up I'm gonna bring up an example. Michigan coach Jawan Howard, who used to play for the Fab Five, was in a uh, uh, game over the weekend against Wisconsin. And it's it's a very strange Jawan Howard had a reputation for being a really good guy. He was probably one of the nicest guys of the Fab Four who, in my estimation, were a bunch of punks, although some people say uh, Jimmy King and um, Ray, Ray, what's his name, uh, were good dudes. I'm not sure about that, but I'm going to go on whatever they say about them. Anyway, um, the Fab Five changes basketball. They were, they're the first team that wears these long shorts, uh, they all shave their heads and they become like the first NC2A basketball team that just feels like hip hop. They feel hip hop. They feel rap. Chris Weber is a part of that team. He's a Pisces. Jalen Rose is a part of that team. He's an Aquarian. 
So Juwan Howard's a part of that team. He's a good dude. He gets the job at Michigan. He's over his head. He's not a very good coach. He's losing games. Last year, he went after the coach for Maryland, Mark Turgeon. And over the weekend, he went after the coach for Wisconsin because the coach for Wisconsin, when they were way up, it was a blowout. He wanted to bring in – this is the last game of the season, by the way. And he wanted to bring in guys who, who, who had not played all season. It was the last 48 seconds of the game. So he brings in these guys just, just to get them on the court so that they can say, yeah, I was on the court in an NC2A game, even though it's only like 48 seconds or whatever. So he calls him out, he brings him in, and then Juwan Howard tells his guys to full court press. Now, these guys aren't Michigan's first team, right? They're Wisconsin's third team, and they don't play. So Juwan Howard's playing against uh, Wisconsin's bench warmers like it's a championship game, and it's the closing seconds. And the coach, I think his name is Guard, calls timeout with about 15 seconds left because he needed to stop what, what, what Juwan Howard was doing and instruct his kids. Like, look, they're full court pressing you. I don't know why they're doing this but here's how you're going to break it. And he breaks it down for them. And at the end of the game, coaches are supposed to shake hands with each other. And Juwan Howard won't shake his hand because he feels insulted that he called a timeout with 15 seconds left, which is really weird. Then what happens is that guard touches him on the elbow and puts his hand. It's just like, wait a minute. I'm going to tell you why I did what I did. He wants to get his point across. He's, saying, you did this, and so I had to do this. I'm just letting you know why. And then Juwan Howard gets all pissed off, takes it personal, shoves him away, don't put your hands on me. And then it escalates into this melee near the bench, and then Juwan Howard hits one of the Michigan assistant coaches, and then the players start going at it. It's really bad. And what we're seeing is this attack therapy that's gone out of control. Like they've unleashed this attack therapy on everyone. And so you can point a finger at this group and this person, and you can dress them down and you can dress them down and you can dress them down. And it really became the volume got turned up It started with Obama, but then the volume got really turned up with Trump. And we've been in this open air combat zone, fully immersive in attack therapy. Now, remember, attack therapy is connected to this technique of brainwashing. So you put that into the mix. And then you throw in things like the mask. And then you throw in things like everybody doing everything at the same time, um, being locked in a recovery center like Synanon or locked in this, this thing where this authority tells you, you can't get out of even it's for a limited period of time. And in moments like that, what happens? People revert to feeling like a child. So who do they lean on? They lean on the authority figure who is generally at the top of the pyramid inside of these structures whether it's Chuck Dieterich or L. Ron Hubbard 
or Werner Erhard or whomever, Jim Baker from Source Family, they lean on these figures. These figures become their source of strength. They become uh, the, the parental aspect for the childlike state that they've been reduced to, which is what happened. And who emerges during that with COVID? It's Tony Fauci. So Tony Fauci becomes the cult leader. It is not Donald Trump. He is not the cult leader. Tony Fauci becomes the Chuck Dietrich. He becomes the, the Jim Jones. He becomes the uh, Werner Erhard. Just name your figure of that time and of that particular cult. And it, it is a cult. And it does have a form of brainwashing. And the brainwashing is the vax versus the unvaxed, the mass versus the unmasked, black versus white, pronouns versus non-pronouns, right versus left, LGBTQ versus family values, polarization, and it's all taking place through the vox populi. So what they did is they figured out how to bring this whole idea of attack therapy into the mainstream and have everybody participate in it. Doxing attack therapy. Doxing, by the way, is something that would come out of a cult ideology of paranoia. That's that you would have Scientology or Synanon or some of these other groups, they'd go out and dox people. And in Synanon's case, they would violently dox people. So we can see the, the, you know, the bones of some of these cultic groups and how the various pieces of their operations have been pieced together and then just launched into our collective experience. It's frightening. So when they talk about mass formation hypnosis, or mass formation psychosis, whether it's Robert Malone or the other guy, the, uh, I believe it's the German guy, if I'm not mistaken. They're missing some integral pieces around this, which I've just brought from the past into the present. So, so it's very interesting when you look at it through this lens and the, these control operations that have been initiated and socially engineered to ultimately brainwash us, put us in a state of mind control, make us infantile, attached to authority figures like Fauci, and create a cultic situation, and then become paranoid and turn people against one another. It's fascinating, in my humble opinion. Okay, we have, uh, it's going to be 1022, and we're going to go to uh, 1041, so we have about 20 minutes left in the show. I want to talk a little bit about the Pluto return, because, well, it's here now. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time kind of paying attention to what was going on in Ukraine. It looks like the Russians have claimed uh, Donetsk, a.k.a. Donbass, and uh, NATO, the EU, and the U.S. Eh, go ahead. You can do that. Why not? We'll give it to you. So for a time, we have averted uh, World War III for a time. 
but they can, it's one of those things, again, they, they can bring this out at any time, crank it up, get people freaked out, get them uh, in a form of you know, social shock therapy, uh, harvest the louche. And they, so they've got this operation they can go back to again and again and again and again. And so we're through that, but we're in this phase now. And last night when I was on with Noreen, the Pluto return doesn't really officially end until 2024. I hate to break the news to you, but um, there are four retrogrades. Actually, there are two retrogrades, but there are four aspects to the Pluto return. So we have a retrograde in June, at the end of June, where Pluto goes retrograde. And it goes retrograding to 20, it's still at the 27th degree on 4th of July. So you want to circle 4th of July on your calendar. I think that's a big day in this Pluto return cycle. Um, then it goes direct on the uh, 9th of October. So so it goes direct again. And I think by the end of the year, it's back. It, it, it hits, it, it, it goes direct and then it goes back to 27 on the 9th of October. Okay. So that gets us into October. Then we move into Pluto and Aquarius in 2023 for a brief period of time. And then guess what? It retrogrades again and it goes back and hits Pluto in Capricorn at 27 degrees by the end of 2023. We start 2024 with Pluto at 27 degrees, and then we move into Pluto and Aquarius in 2024. But we're in a very long two-year cycle, essentially, with the Pluto return. And the retrogrades play a huge role, as do other aspects in relationship to Pluto. So I'm going to get into that more this coming Sunday night on Sunday Night Astro Live over on YouTube. But I really took a, a, a hard look at uh, the cycles with Pluto and this Pluto return, and it became very clear that it's a process and not a moment, which is the same thing with, if you look at um, the Pluto transit in Capricorn during that 1776 period, I don't believe there's any retrogrades before it moves into Aquarius, but it is a process. And the Declaration of Independence uh, starts that process. So the culmination of that process, in my estimation, is when Pluto moves into Aquarius. And we have this new country uh, based on the ideas and principles of Sir Francis Bacon and the new Atlantis which is very Aquarian. And that's where, again, theoretically, these ideals take shape. And uh, I think probably one of the more enlightened people of that group, even though, um, what's his name? Mike Gaddy probably wouldn't agree with me. Thomas Jefferson becomes president. I think, I think he's president during the Pluto and Aquarius phase. And, and Jefferson is, what, right around 
late Aquarius, early Pisces, if I'm not mistaken. So he's kind of an interesting character to be president during that time. Um, but the Pluto, we're, we're just starting now with this whole thing. And I feel like the bulk of this Pluto return is going to have a lot to do with money in the financial system and getting people into the, uh, the, uh, the personal, personal credit score, um, you know, all the things where, you know, you're going to have to be a good boy or a good girl in order to uh, get the things that you need in the world. And one of the things that I wasn't aware of, but, but apparently just happened, that Biden just extended uh, the emergency authorization because the emergency authorization comes up again on 313, which is when Trump initiated. So he's already extended it. So we're still in a state of emergency. And they're not done with this thing. They're not, they're pulling everything back. They're pulling the restrictions back. A lot of the mask mandates are starting to drop, not everywhere, some places, not as much as others. But here uh, in the U.S., it's, they're dropping these things. But that doesn't mean they're dropping the operation. And I feel like uh, something either just before the midterms or just after the midterms signals a major change. And we might even see it somewhere around the 4th of July. Because if you're the Democratic Party, let, let's just play this out in terms of partisan politics. We know that the Democratic Party has essentially run the country into the ground with the consent of a number of Republicans. So I'm not just targeting Democrats. Uh, the Republicans are equally culpable because they haven't really put up much of a defense particularly when it came to uh, the election and the recounts and you know, establishing the fact that there was a lot of shady shit going on anyway. But because Biden's approval rating is abysmally low, like lower than any other president in history, if I'm not mistaken, Nixon got pretty low, but not as low as Biden. I'll have to look it up, but I'm pretty certain. And even Johnson was trending very low because of, his continued support for the Vietnam War. Anyway, um, look around. We have inflation. We have high gas prices. Uh, life under Biden has sucked. And economically, it has sucked more than life under Trump. I don't think you would have to be, you would have to make too much of a case for that. Trump, I was paying at times like, ridiculously low for gas, like under $2 a gallon. And that's tripled. That's tripled under Biden. And that's just one, one aspect of it. So they're looking at landslides. Like people are just sharpening their knives and they're going, you know, Fuck you, fuck you, Democrats, fuck you, liberals. Now, they're smart. They'll try to sneak in some um, sheeps and wolf, wolf clothing candidates. They'll try, they'll try to run some Democrats that run as Republicans. They do that. They started doing that 
right around. They've been doing it for a while, actually, but they really made a concerted effort with Ocasio-Cortez and the whole squad thing because there were some Republican candidates that were that were voted in. Actually, it was kind of Democrats. Anyway, they may try some of that, but based on their performance, even with all the people that they've brought into the country illegally, they're going to get their clocks cleaned during the midterms. I don't think any Democrat is safe. So they cannot run a funny scam for the elections because the amount of rigging the election, and we saw like what ends they went to to defeat Trump. They literally shut down precincts for days and were just doing everything in their power to bring in as many votes as possible and then shut down any of the uh, uh, overseeing and accountability process. They just shut it down. They wouldn't let anybody watch them. So think about what they had to do for Trump. What do you think they're going to have to do for the midterms? Like if they'll have to be so over the top that they won't be able to do it. Like they're not going to be able to cheat. So if they can't cheat, that means that it's probably in their best interest to not have an election. And that's where we come into the Pluto return and the Pluto retrograde right around the 4th of July. And there's also this Neptune sextile to Pluto that's going on. So we're, we're definitely in a very interesting phase and cycle with Pluto here. And the idea is that, you know, with the Pluto return that we come out as being a different entity and maybe a new Republic. And, um, I can see that happening and let's hope it's for the better because I'm not a, a complete doom and gloomer guy because when I was talking about Chuck Dieterich and to wrap this up and to bring it back to Synanon, he was an Aquarian and again, he had this idea that he was going to do this great thing and he did. It just didn't turn out the way that he thought it was going to. And when we look at, the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset. And by the way, Klaus Schwab is in the Aries like Chuck Dietrich. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, and they have the social credit score, uh, which is the personal credit score, the social credit score, uh, the 5G networks, uh, the, the carbon-based economy, uh, digital currency, all trackable, transparent, AI, machine learning, all this bullshit, right? And we know that this is the dark Aquarian nightmare in the the incarnation of the dark Aquarian age. Remember, Uranus and Aquarius doesn't always happen the way that it is mapped out and planned out. So they may have all these things lined up and they may think that they've got it in the bag and they have all their technological and sociological ducks all in a row. But because we're dealing with Aquarian energy, it doesn't really work that way that the outcome could be very different from the intent. And that, boys and girls, loyal listeners, gives me faith and hope that at the end of the day, we will be victorious because they are determining the rules 
of engagement in, in the terms and conditions of how this thing is going to evolve. And it's all based on their dark science and their dark social agenda, which is negative Aquarius. But behind it all is the spirit of Aquarius, the spirit of Uranus, which is rebellious, which is revolutionary, and ultimately winds up being radically evolutionary. Hang in there, stay in the game. Not their game, not the game, but stay in the game, which is your game. And I think you are pretty well aware for the most part of how that works for yourself. Know, know, know your user's manual. You can do that through astrology, by the way. All right. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to say when what's possible. If you're listening on the podcast side of things, you can always join us here live at 9-11 a.m. on 15 Minutes of Flame. Dot com. I'm Robert Phoenix, and uh, we'll be back here tomorrow to track what happened on 2-22-22. Uh, once again, I'll be on with Clyde Lewis, Ground Zero tonight. And I think, uh, when is Jasper, when is that? When is that happening? Uh, let's see. So that's 9 p.m. Pacific, 11 p.m. Central in the witching hour, 12 midnight if you're on the East Coast. I love Clyde. It's his birthday. It'll be cool to be on a show on his birthday. So um, you guys take good care. I'll either see you tonight or I'll see you tomorrow. Bye for now.